I'd like to invite you this morning to turn with me in God's Word to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and we're going to read God's Word this morning under the heading of Faith Illustrated. Faith Illustrated from Romans 4, and then afterwards we will turn in our Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 23. But first we're going to give our attention to the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 4, Verses 1 through 12. Let's read God's word. What then shall we say? That Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe, though they are still uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision, to those who are not only are are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, Well, our father Abraham had, while still uncircumcised. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let's turn also in the back of the Psalter hymnal to page 30, Lord's Day 23. Lord's Day Lord's Day 23, I'm going to read the question and invite the congregation to respond in unison with the answer. Beginning with question 59. What good does it do you, however, to believe all this? And together we respond. In Christ I am right with God and heir to life everlasting. Question 60. How are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. 
as if I had been perfectly obedient, as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Question 61. Why do you say that by faith alone you are right with God? It is not because of any value my faith has that God is pleased with me. Only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness make me right with God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. Blessed congregation, one of the challenges that all people face when we come to the book of Romans is how doctrinal the book is. In fact, the letter to the Romans is so intensely theological that some have even speculated in church history that it was originally written as a textbook for the Roman church about what they needed to believe about the person of Jesus Christ and about what they needed to believe about the church's doctrines. Throughout this letter, we learn new theological words. Paul, in Romans 1-3, through has taught us about justification. Our right standing before God. He'll teach us about redemption. That Jesus pays a price to set us free. He'll teach us about propitiation. That's the satisfaction of the wrath of God. And all of this leads Paul to this glorious conclusion that we are justified by grace through faith in Christ apart from works of the law. Hallelujah! Yet Paul is a good pastor. And he is not aloof or disconnected from his congregation. And he knows that the minds of the Jewish people in the Roman church would have been swimming with all this new theology. Maybe that's how we feel as well when we come to the book of Romans. It seems so deep, so complex, we fear even coming to it. This has led preachers and congregants alike to try to stay away from this book, thinking we need to do 300 sermons in the book of Romans in order to do it justice. The Apostle Paul knows that it's an incredible challenge to be able to grasp grasp concepts as great as these. And so Paul does what every good teacher does when he wants to make a point. He uses illustrations. And he doesn't just call on anybody in order to illustrate these truths, but he calls on the two greatest Old Testament examples. That Abraham and David's lives illustrate the gospel truth. That as Paul says in Romans chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 21, all of humanity stands silent before God. We're guilty. But the Lord graciously bestows righteousness by faith 
apart from the works of the law, with no exceptions. That the way of salvation for us today is the same means of salvation for our spiritual forefathers. That Abraham, even though he did great things, the Scriptures say he was not justified by the great things he did, but he was justified by faith. And David, despite his great sins, the Scripture says he was forgiven by grace. Faith illustrated. I want to show you this in three points this morning. Three major characters in the Bible. The first two, the Old Testament examples, Abraham, that's going to be our first example, justified by faith. And then second point, David, a forgiven sinner. And then third, Jesus, the Savior of all. Abraham, justified by faith. David, a forgiven sinner. And Jesus, Savior of all. And our theme for our time together this morning is that to aid our faith, Paul illustrates justification. To aid our faith, Paul illustrates justification. And so our first point is that Abraham is justified by faith. The first example Paul uses is that of Abraham. In congregation, there may not have been a more important figure to the Jews than Father Abraham. In the Bible, he is spoken of with great honor. He is called the father of Israel. The rock from which God carved out His people. Isaiah 51 says that. And remember that God swore, made a covenant with Abraham after He called him out from the land of Ur. He gave him His covenant promises. He gave him the sign of circumcision. He's even called in the Scriptures, the friend of God. Put it this way, Abraham was the rock star of the Jewish faith. Everyone looked up to him. Everyone loved him. He was the picture of what it was to be a good Jew. And if you read through the Abrahamic narrative maybe in your afternoon devotions today from Genesis 12, even all the way through Genesis 17, you would see Abraham behaving like God's friend. But that's not all you would see. Abraham is not only God's friend, but he, we know, was also cowardly when he trades Sarah, his wife, away for his own freedom. It can be described as nothing but foolish when he tries to take God's covenant into his own hands and marries Hagar and has a son, Ishmael, thinking this will be the one God has promised. And it's nothing but cold-hearted when he allows Sarah to drive Hagar and Ishmael into the wilderness to let them die. The truth about Abraham is that, yes, he was faithful, but he also failed in his life. But what we begin to see over time is that the Jews tended to emphasize his faith to the detriment, to the minimization of his sin. 
Let's be absolutely clear this morning. The Jews never taught that Abraham was justified by faith. We don't have any evidence that they ever believed someone could stand before God by faith alone. So the flip side of that is that he earned his right standing before God. That he deserved to be in heaven. That he was there by his own strength. In fact, we have what we call intertestamental books. These are books that were written between the Old Testament and the New Testament that seem to testify to this very fact. Jubilees, chapter 23, verse 10 says, Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds with the Lord and was well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Righteous before God by works. First Maccabees asks, was not Abraham found faithful when tested? Sirach, chapter 44, verse 19 says, Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations. And listen to this, no one has been found like him in glory. Justification by works. Right standing before God by being good. What these books show us is that the Israelites tended to view Abraham as a great man who deserved God's favor. Now, no doubt, he did do wonderful things. When he was called out, Leaving the land of Ur, he left everything he knew to go to an alien land. Remember that he rescued Lot from captivity. And above all, his willingness to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain. These are stirring acts of obedience. But the million dollar question this morning is, is that did these acts of obedience cause God To declare him righteous. This is exactly the question Paul is asking in verse 1. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1 this morning. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? What Paul is asking is, what in his own power, in his own person, did he actually accomplish? You see, Abraham's courage in Genesis 12-14 through might let him boast before men, but he cannot claim that his obedience or piety has won him favor with God. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But look what Paul says, but not before God. Paul is saying that before God, in our own flesh, we cannot actually earn God's favor. Congregation, hear this this morning. Even religious rock stars need Jesus' grace. Remember, not once but twice did He trade Sarai away for His freedom. He failed to trust God's promises 
that God would provide an heir when he married Hagar. He let Sarah drive them into the wilderness to to die. And even on the day he believed, we read in Genesis 15, when he believes upon God's promise and it's accounted to him as righteousness, is it strong faith? I don't think there's anything meritorious there. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 15, It says that the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And how does Abraham respond? Does he say, Yes, Lord? I've been waiting for the promise. Yes, Lord. I'm excited. I believe. No, Abraham doubts. The promise. Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my household, or no member of my household will be my heir. Complaining. Yet this was the day of new birth for Abraham. I grew up in the Methodist Church of Canada. This is the day Abraham walked the sawdust aisle, we would say. He gave his heart to Jesus. And it does not say that he was especially faithful. Genesis 15 doesn't say he brings anything meritorious to God doesn't say that he had strong faith. But the Lord still took him outside and said, look at the stars of heaven. Look at the sand of the seashore. So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed. He believed. And in the act of believing, God Counts, credits to him righteousness. So look at Genesis 15 this morning. Did God look at Abraham's works, his righteousness, his goodness, and repay him for them? No. Abraham believed. He had faith. Through that, God makes him righteous. This is seen all throughout Lord's Day 23. Look at the headings of your catechism there. Question 59. How does it help you to believe all this? Question 60. If I only accept this with a believing Heart, if I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. The catechism is not saying anything different than the Bible. It's just agreeing with Scripture that by faith, by believing, by throwing ourselves upon the mercy of Christ, that God uses faith as the thing to make us righteous. 
Notice that the Catechism says it's God who justifies. Not Abraham, not circumcision, not the pastor of the church, not even faith justifies. But faith is the instrument God uses to give us Christ. Congregation, isn't there great comfort here? Because if we're honest, often we feel like Abraham. We receive his covenant, we receive his promises, we receive his word, and we still struggle to believe. Lord, I'm struggling to agree with you. I'm filled with doubt. But even on the day when Abram's faith was weak, says the Bible, in the doubting of God's promises, even though there was just a glimmer of faith in his heart, it says that God gave him the righteousness of Christ. We need to hear this this morning. Your right standing before God is not based on the worthiness of your faith. Being right before God is not based on the strength of your faith. Your right standing before God is based on the strength of God. The mercy of God. The grace of God. Look at question 61. Not that I please God by the worthiness of my faith, but only by Christ's satisfaction. Righteousness and holiness is my righteousness before God. And Paul proves this by pointing us to the highest authority, the Word of God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is why there's no room for boasting. Abraham brings nothing to the relationship save the acknowledgement of his misery and his sin and his need for mercy. What Abraham is doing in Genesis 15 is he is throwing himself on the promise of God. He believes in God's covenant promise. He believes in the promise of the future seed. He believes in the promise of salvation. He embraces the favor of God, embraces God's grace, and then God counts him righteous. And I think this New King James Bible translates it well. The best way to understand this word is impute. Impute. We see that here. You see, the law and the prophets use that word this way. In Numbers 18, it says God counted, imputed, the sacrifice of Israel as a covering for sins. Numbers 18, 27. In 2 Samuel 19, when Absalom and uh, his party of people overthrow David's throne and 
Uh, David comes back and then he's restored as king of the nation of Israel. Uh, One of the men who sinned against David was still found there. But we read in 2 Samuel 19, verse 19, that King David did not impute. He did not count his sins against him. The idea here of that word impute is that we are reckoned righteous by something other than our actions, right? Just like the people of Israel with their sacrifices. That's what impute means. Borrowing, being given the righteousness of someone else. What Abraham is teaching us then in his own life is that right standing comes by being given, imputed, righteousness. That's how we're justified. To those whom righteousness is given, they are justified. And we can rejoice that even though Abraham was a sinner, God reckoned him as righteous. Think about this. Remember that the book of Genesis isn't even written from Abraham's perspective. Who wrote Genesis? Moses. Writing from God's perspective. This is how God views Abraham. This is why he's called a friend of God. This is why he's loved of God, acknowledged by God, regarded as just, not because he was perfect, but because God reckoned him righteous in Christ. Abraham, justified by faith. A word of application alluded to this earlier, sometimes we feel that our faith is weak. And we feel that our faith is not worthy of salvation. But we need to be reminded this morning that weak faith is still faith. God does not count the sins of those who by faith are trusting in Christ. Even though we are weak. What matters is not what we have done, but what God has done. What matters not is what we think of ourselves or what Satan thinks of us, but what God thinks of us. We need to apply the promises of God that by grace we are washed, sanctified, justified in Christ. That's who we are now. And so when the world points its finger at you, or Satan whispers in your ear your shortcomings, we have to claim Christ for them. Yes, we are sinners. Sinners justified by faith. Not only this, we also use, Paul applies a second example to us. The example, another titan of biblical history of David. We read in verse 6 that David, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. 
But you see that David adds a new dimension to justification. You see that Abraham teaches us that justification, despite his righteous deeds, is not by works. But David teaches us, on the other side, that despite his grave sins, he is not condemned. This is the twofold blessing of justification in Christ. Abraham declares that our good deeds do not justify us, but David teaches us that our misdeeds do not condemn us. And so Paul quotes from Psalm 32, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where David says these words, what we just sang a few moments ago. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. I feel like when we read those words, we have to add a hallelujah at the end. See, I think when David is writing Psalm 32, he's filled with happiness. He is jubilant. His sins are not counted against them. But if there was anyone who deserved to be condemned for their sins, it was him. See, Paul is assuming we all remember the background of Psalm 32. That the Bible teaches us that David was a man after God's own heart. That David in his early years was wholly devoted and wholly consecrated to God. That by God's anointing, David defeated enemies who were ten times his size. Think of Goliath. He defeats ominous foes. He conquers invading armies. He rules injustice. He cares for the oppressed. And he had an intimate, close fellowship with God. He's even described in the Bible as the sweet psalmist of Israel. Seventy psalms written by David. And we read in 2 Samuel 11 that as he's standing on his rooftop, he sees a woman bathing. He calls her into his presence. He commits adultery with this woman and then kills her husband. He throws it all away. in his affair with Bathsheba. Towards the end of his life, the man after God's own heart begins to be known as somebody who covets. He lies. He deceives. He steals. And the only things the Scriptures tell us that make his actions worse is that they were premeditated, they were public, and they were callous. So when David says in Psalm 32... The lawless deeds, he's not just referring to secret sins or missing the mark. He's referring to open, rebellious violation of God's law. That's what David was doing. But he says in Psalm 32, in this jubilant tome, that his sins are forgiven. 
that God does not count his sins against him. Because God in His mercy sent him the prophet Nathan who confronted him in his sinful ways and David repented. And he cried out, I've sinned against the Lord. And just like Abraham, he throws himself upon the mercy of God, throws himself upon God's covenant promises, and then Nathan responds and says, the Lord has taken away your sins. That those who trust in Christ will never be condemned. So in the first example, Abraham has something that he or Abraham did not have something that was counted to him. And in our second example, we see that David had something that was not counted against him. We're not only given what we need in Jesus, but we're also cleansed of having done anything wrong. And there is no greater blessedness under heaven to have God in His mercy transfer His uh, mercy and grace, transfer the righteousness of Jesus to our account, and then to not count our sins against us. That the righteousness of Jesus is counted to you and to me. It's imputed, it's given to Abraham and to David. And our sins are counted, imputed to Jesus. Think about this this morning. So that when we stand before God, who knows everything that we've ever done, He knows every evil thought. He knows every wicked deed. He knows every inclination of our heart. When He looks at us, He does not see our sin. He sees the person and the work. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Catechism says, He grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. As if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. So that when David stood before God's throne, God looks upon David and he doesn't see adultery. He doesn't see murder. He doesn't see lying. He sees the righteousness of Christ given to him. As if David had been perfectly obedient all the days of our life. Now this doesn't mean since David wasn't condemned that God did not chastise him. Or that there wasn't some penalty for David's sin this side of heaven. Legally, I'm speaking. We may still have to pay for sins on earth which we commit. But we can take comfort this morning that we will never have to pay for our sins a second time when we stand before the Lord because Jesus has paid it all. 
That's the root of David's joy in Psalm 32. The justification that brings forgiveness and the cleansing power of Jesus' blood is what makes us, and our conscience of being accepted before it is what gives us a joy, an unspeakable joy. Because we are able to say of God in Christ, I am accepted as His Son. I am accepted as His daughter, not because I am perfect, but because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. Because Jesus, our third and final point, is the Savior of all who throw themselves on His mercy. The blessing of justification and forgiveness, Paul says, is for Jews and Gentiles. It's for the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Look at verses 9 and 11. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, and he received the sign of circumcision and a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while he was still uncircumcised. And what Paul is doing here is he's actually taking you on a short chronology of Abraham's life. See, if you flip in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 12, we see that in Genesis chapter 12, this is where God calls Abram out from the land of Ur to the wilderness. Then flip to Genesis chapter 15. This is where God justified him, where Abraham throws himself on God's mercy and he trusts in Christ. Then you flip in Genesis 17. Then there's the sign of circumcision given. Here's Paul's grand conclusion. From Genesis 12 to Genesis 16, Abraham belongs to the undifferentiated group of people called Gentiles. Abraham was an uncircumcised Gentile. What does Hebrews 11 say? By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to the place where he would receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents. All of this congregation was before he was circumcised. And so if God can give to an uncircumcised Gentile idol maker from the land of Ur, surely salvation is a gift to all who believe. Only, says the Catechism, all we need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. So it doesn't matter if you're young or you're old. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, black or white, Christ is a gift unto salvation of all who fall on their knees and believe.
while he was a Gentile. It said, the Lord says, was said, to count unto him as righteousness. Even though Abraham did not know the name of Jesus, he did not know the cross of Jesus, he believed in Jesus. That all of the sins and shortcomings of Abraham and David and all who ever believe are placed upon the shoulders of Christ upon the cross. And God grants and credits to him, to you, to me, the righteousness of Jesus. And God grants and credits to Jesus the sin of all who trust in him. Abraham is a picture, then, of God saving Jews and Gentiles. The final two verses here, in conclusion, say this. Righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. We are called to follow in the steps of Abraham. Abram did great things, but he was justified by faith, not works. David was a great sinner, yet he received God's mercy by faith. The same holds true for us. We are righteous not by our works, nor by our sins. We are righteous as the catechism before God and an heir to everlasting life by faith alone. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks this morning for your bountiful mercies and your grace which you have given not only to us but to your people of old. We thank you, Lord, for your examples that you have handed down throughout the ages of Abraham of David, but most importantly of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you have not justified us by works, for no man could boast before your faith, but by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, who so cleanses us that it is as if we have never sinned nor been sinners, so that we can come before God and stand in his presence, even this morning and for all of eternity, and that we can worship and adore him and be there with you, Father, because we are righteous before you in Christ. For this we worship. For this we praise your name. Father, we even pray this, evening, this morning, if there be any among us who have yet to receive that blessing of that double imputation, We pray, Lord, that you would soften their hearts by the power of your Spirit and that you might draw lost sinners under yourself. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.